I've played that specifically this morning to remind us that we are in a war. We're in a spiritual war. And so we need to take God's word seriously as it comes to us week by week in your quiet times. Here as we come together as a church to read God's word, we need to take it seriously. These are our commanding officers' instructions to us during this time of war while we're on this earth. And so those words from Piper, we need to make war on our sin, really sum up what we're going to be speaking about this morning. So I'd ask you to turn in God's word with me again to the letter of First Peter, chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 12 this morning. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. Let's just go back to verse 9 to remind ourselves of our situation. Verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in light of that, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You may all still remember Christmas last year, just before Christmas when that provocative billboard appeared. St. Matthew's Church in Auckland put it up, depicting Joseph and Mary in bed. Archdeacon Glenn Cardley's words were this. This is why he did this. To make the news at Christmas, it seems a priest just needs to question the literalness of a virgin giving birth. That's why he did it. To, co- to cause conversation, to cast doubt. Did God really say, in other words, is what he's saying here. You see, but the sad thing about all that was that instead of pointing to Christ and Christ's gift of salvation at Christmas, attention was diverted to a priest, his need for recognition and for causing a stir for the sake of discussion. And the sad thing is that the scandalous conduct of so-called Christians has been a constant fuel for critics and for skeptics of Christianity right from when the church started way back in the first century. 
This is the way the media summed up what happened over here. And remember, this went out on the internet to millions of people from good old New Zealand. This is what the media said in summary. Whatever the atheists can do, the Christians can do better. You want to bring down Christianity? Leave it to the Christians. They can do it better than the atheists can do it. You know, it's been said that the best argument for Christianity is Christians. And that's true. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are self-righteous and smug and complacent consecration, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. It's a man by the name of Van Alken who said that. And isn't that so true? The best advert for Christians, for Christianity, is Christians. If we live the way God wants us to live. But when we go and live disobedient lives, then we are the worst advert for Christianity. What about you and me? What do our lives say about Christ and Christianity? What does the billboard of our lives advertise daily as people see it? You know, these verses changed my life this week because it just orientated me again to live such a life in front of non-believers, those who I was coming into contact with down in Wellington, that my life pointed to Christ. This text we're going to look at this morning, these two verses, are the practical implications of holiness in our lives. How do we live holy lives in the midst of a hostile world? And now we've had all the theory behind this, we've had all the theology behind how we are to live holy lives. Now we come to the practical application. And he firstly starts here with living in front of the world. Then he's going to go to how do we live as citizens of a country, you can glance in your Bible just going ahead, we're going to be looking at living as husbands and wives. How do we live holy lives before God in that way? And so he's going to go through right until the end of chapter 4, verse 11, on the practical application of holiness. And so today we're looking at how do we proclaim God's excellencies, verse 9, the one who called us out of darkness into his light. How do we practically live that out in our everyday lives. Now please take note today, this can't happen outside of the framework of hope in Christ, verse 3. Just glance back to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you're not born again, it doesn't matter how you live, you are living outside of God's will, outside of God, what God wants for you. And you need to be born again first. You cannot earn your way into heaven by trying to live a good life. All right. So that's the part, one part of the framework. And the other part of the framework is God's grace to us. Turn with me, if you would, to Second Peter 1 verse 4. A few pages on. But by these he has granted to, to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Again, reiterating there, 
Without Christ in your life, it doesn't matter how good you try and live, you cannot go to heaven. So that is the framework inside what we're going to be speaking about today. So as we come to, back to chapter 2, verse 11, we need to see that there are two parts to this command that's been given to us here as Christians. And the first part is there in verse 11. Abstain from fleshly lusts. That's the first direct command. It's a personal and a godly discipline that is inward in us that other people can't see and it's private. I need to abstain. It is a discipline I need to learn. And then the second part we're going to look at is keep your conduct pure. And yes, it's also personal, but it is a godly behavior that is outward in public. Behavior is something that people can see. So we're going to be looking at those two commands. So firstly, abstain from fleshly lusts. The apostle firstly reminds them in verses 9 and 10 of who they are, what they are now and what they were. He says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's who you are now. Be reminded, says the apostle. Look at what you were. You were called out of darkness and into God's light. You are now God's beloved. And that's why he starts with verse 11. He starts with the word beloved. You are the beloved of God. Remember that every day as believers. You are God's beloved. When you're going through life and everything seems to be coming against you, you are God's beloved one. He's brought you from darkness to light. He's not going to let you go. And he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Now look around you. There's a bunch of aliens around you. Have you looked? You see, we are all passing through this world. If you're a believer here today, we are aliens and sojourners and pilgrims, says Scripture. We are passing through. We are temporary residents. And sometimes we need to stop and remind ourselves of that. Because we so quickly settle down, put down roots and start gathering things, don't we? And that's not the best way to travel. Ask me, I just moved. We are exiles. You see, the Bible says we've made our homes next to the citizens of this world. We are here temporarily. We are just letting. And then we're going to be going to our new home. And so the apostle reminds them. He says, I urge you. You see, there's urgency here in his, in, his, in his tone. He says, I beseech you, I exhort you, live holy lives while you're in this world. You're only here for a while. Live a holy life while you're here. Remember who you are. Remember where you've come from. And then live such lives that the world might, may see you by your difference in this world question is, do we live different lives in the world around us? Because if we don't, we're just going to merge with them. They're not even going to notice us. So the world needs to notice us, needs to notice us by our difference to them. And that doesn't mean you've got to dress weird and wear ties. That means your lifestyle has to be different to those around you. You've got, your thinking's got to be different. Your actions have got to be different. That's what the Apostle's urging here. 
Where does that start? Where does that difference start? Well, it starts inside of us. We need to abstain from something. And that means there's action that's got to happen inside. Abstaining from the passions of the flesh. That word abstain means to hold yourself back from something. And when we're speaking about the temptations of the flesh, it's the temptations of your own flesh you've got to hold yourself back from. You see, because those temptations, if they are not handled correctly, give birth to desires, and then those desires give birth to direct disobedience to God. It starts inside, and then it comes out. They are the passions of the flesh. Their source is the flesh. And when we speak about the flesh here and the passions of the flesh, it's not just speaking about sexual temptation, by the way. We're speaking here about anything, anything that would keep us away from God or anything that would get between us and God. That is a temptation of the flesh. And yes, you may be saved this morning, but all of us still have this constant sin would pull in us. And you'll know, try Monday mornings, you'll know there's a sin would pull. Do I really need to get going again this week? That's a sinful desire. It's a sinful pull. And we are to hold ourselves back. The word is here to rein back as in a horse. Your sin wants to get going, you need to rein it back because otherwise it will run with you. You see, sin gushes from inside you and I. When we haven't had our sin dealt with as we should have, our sin gushes out from inside of us. The danger is not from outside, it's from inside. And that's why I played you that clip from Piper. He said, my greatest spiritual enemy is not Satan. It is myself and my sin. That is my greatest enemy. I need to make war on myself and on my own sin. Why? Because it's a full frontal attack on my soul. The Bible says your sin alienates your soul from God. There's a full frontal warfare happening from the sin inside me, on me, on my soul. It wants to bring me down. My sin is, it's an active and intentional and unrelenting. It doesn't give up. When you think you've got on top of it, it's there again. And a constant assault. That is one aim. It wants to bring me down. And that's why we've got to take sin so seriously in our lives. That's why there's a book been written called Respectable Sins. Is there something like a respectable sin? It's those little sins we think, God won't mind. It's just a small one. Now he does mind. Because sin gives birth to wrong actions and that gives birth to wrong behavior against him. You see, a lot of people go around this world, a lot of Christians, and I've seen them and I've met them, and they keep looking around for Satan because Satan is going to be tempting them all over the place. Well, the scripture says it's not Satan. Don't blame everything on Satan. He's not omnipresent, is he? He can only be one place at one time. But our sin is always with us when we don't deal with it. It's inside of us. It goes with us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 5.17. Listen to God's word. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. It's against here. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And you know, even the super apostle Paul 
had problems with this. And he speaks about it. He says, I do those things I don't want to do. And those things I do want to do, I don't do. Woe is me, says the Apostle Paul. And he's a super one. What about us as normal human beings, normal Christians? Romans 8 verses 7 and 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Look at those words. Those are war words. The mind that is set on the flesh, if you're seeing the things of the flesh and if your mind is concentrated and your eyes are concentrated on the flesh, those things happening around you, you, your mind is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, there's a war on whether we want to be involved in it or not. We are involved in a war. It's a daily war. And we can either fight that sin in us or we can suffer the consequences that come from it and the injury it brings. Our verse carries on. It says, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain, that is, hold back, from the fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Why must we do that? And this is the verse that really changed me this week as God was working this into me this week. Why do I need to abstain from my own sinful passions? Firstly, it's, it, I cannot please God while I've got that sin in me. But secondly, here it is. My inward condition will determine my outward behavior. You see, what is happening inside of me will come out in my behavior. And that is what verse 12 is all about. Verse 12 says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Keep it excellent among the Gentiles. So keep your conduct pure. This is now the outward working of what's already been happening inside of us. You see, people around us can see what is happening inside of us by the way we act, by the way we react, by the way we make decisions. They can see the mirror of what is happening inside of us. It comes out in our actions. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. There's two reasons we need to do that. Here it is. Here's the first one. So that they can see that your life measures up to your words. You see, we are to live among the Gentiles so that they can see the way we live. That's why God put us here. That's why we don't go to heaven when God converts us. He doesn't take us directly to heaven. He keeps us here on earth because He wants us to live among the Gentiles so that our lives can give testimony of what God is, has done and is doing in us. And as we live among the Gentiles, and the Gentiles here means unbelievers, not those who aren't Jewish, unbelievers, as you live among the Gentiles, let them look at your life. Look, let them look at your conduct, your conversations, your life choices, your interaction with them, and let them see that your life is pure and honorable, says our text. The Greek here literally means your life needs to shine with a goodness which is beautiful and which, here it is, which strikes the eye. That is what that word means there. Which strikes the eye. You see, the lives that we live, are they so different to those around us that it strikes the eyes? It's immediately apparent that we are Christians and believers. Do my words to the world, when I witness to them, do they measure up with my life? Do I say one thing but I live another thing? 
And the world looks at me and they think, you're just two-faced. And the world immediately doesn't look at us anymore. You see, sometimes we as Christians, we come here to church on a Sunday morning and people walk past our house, our church over here, and they hear us singing, they hear someone standing at the front speaking for a long time, and they go by and then we, they go out into the community and there comes a, a guy with a bumper sticker in his car and, he's, and it says, Jesus loves you, and by the way that you're driving, it shows that Jesus doesn't, definitely doesn't love you. You see, the one thing's not measuring up with the other. Or you've just had a parking meter lady come along and you've stayed two minutes longer and you've got that ticket. How do you react to a Gentile in the world? Someone pushes in front of you in the queue in the shopping at Woolies or wherever you are. They push in front of you. What do you say to them? They might know that you go to church. This is a small town. They'll know. Some of us who've had our pictures in the paper, they know. Which makes it even harder. You see, we are to live among the Gentiles so that they can see the way that we live. That's God's design. He's put us here so that we can live among the Gentiles and show them God's light. And the second reason God's put us here is so that our lives will give God glory. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. You see, the world needs to see us living in front of them. And when they see us living, our lives need to point to God. It needs to strike the eyes that we are ambassadors for this King that has sent us here. We are ambassadors for Christ. Galatians 5.20 says, We are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal to them through us. That changed my thinking this week. God makes His appeal to unbelievers through me, through the way I react, through what they see in me. And so, working with a bureaucracy this week in Wellington, with a hospital system, God was putting me there so that unbelievers who were dealing with me could see Him through my actions. That changed the way I was speaking to people. That changed the way I was driving in Wellington traffic. God uses us as believers to point unbelievers to Him. That is such a sobering thought. And so I've got to make sure that my lifestyle measures up to my mouth. That my life gives God glory. And here's a warning for us now as we come to the second part of that, that verse. So that they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now it's not speaking about the end times there, by the way. We'll get to that now. He's saying here, watch out. Here's a warning for you from Scripture today. When unbelievers look at your life and they look at my life and they can't find anything wrong in the way that we live, I'd like to see that one still, even then, they will bring accusations against you to bring you down. That's the Bible saying that to us. You see, Peter says they will speak against you to bring you down. That is the nature of someone who isn't saved. They hate the darkness. They want to. They hate the light. They want to bring it into darkness. 
You see, there's a war on, not just inside us, but also from outside, as people look at us. And Peter's warning them because he knows some of these charges that were brought against early Christians. Listen to some of these charges brought against, un, uh, brought against early Christians. The first one that was brought against him was the charge of disloyalty to the state or disloyalty to Caesar. Why did they say that? Because these Christians were now worshipping someone other than Caesar. And so they said, you people are disloyal, you Christians. So there's disloyalty. Another charge was terrorism was brought against the early Christians. Why? Because when Rome was burnt down in the time of Nero, fingers pointed to the Christians. So you guys are terrorists. Look what you've done. And that's why a lot of Christians lost their lives. That's why a lot of them were driven out of Rome and out of the Roman colonies. Another charge that was brought against early believers was of upsetting trade and of divination. And they got that when the apostles healed that little slave girl. And the other businessmen came and said, you Christians, you're just against fair trade. Another one that came against Christians was the charge of insurrection. Why? Because the Christians then were teaching that slaves are free in Christ. Slaves were free in Christ. But people took that phrase and they said, you are saying that's insurrection. Our whole system works on slaves. How can you now say that slaves are free? And they charged the Christians with leading slaves into rebellion. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Another charge against Christians was holding antisocial values. They even said Christians were atheists. Can you believe that? They said they were atheists because they were worshipping they weren't worshipping idols erected to the gods. So they were atheists from the world's perspective. And then another one, the last one here was, they said, you Christians, you guys are cannibals. Because when you have the Lord's Supper, you say you eat the body and you drink the wine. You guys are cannibals. You see, it was taken completely out of context, but there was a charge leveled against believers and they got persecuted. And so the world is watching you and I. And if they can't find anything in your life, they will put something there to bring you down. Alexander McLaren said this, he said, the world takes its notions of God, most of all, from the people who say they belong to God's family. The world wants to see what God's look, God looks like, so they look at you and I. We reflect what God looks like. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible says McLaren. Isn't that true? When do unbelievers read the Bible? They don't. So they read us more than they read the Bible. They see us every day. They only hear about Jesus Christ. That really struck me. They see us. They only hear about Jesus Christ. So the picture we give them is the picture of Christ. See, what does the world see in your life and mine? It points to Christ. That's what the Apostle is saying to us today. And when God confronts that unbeliever on the day of visitation, and that is the day that God comes and He visits an unbeliever, and He comes and speaks to his soul and He says, You need to be born again. I am bringing you to me. That is the day of visitation spoken about here. Then, what is the response of that unbeliever? Do they say, Yes, Lord, I know. You know and I remember seeing unbelievers seeing believers, but they didn't live up to what you're saying here now, Lord. Is that the testimony of unbelievers when they think of us? Or do they say, Lord, I remember seeing that believer once 
And man, they really shone out who you are. Yes, I want to believe in you. Is that the testimony that unbelievers bring about us? You know, they watch us. When I was recently in South Africa, I went to take the gospel to a good friend of ours who I should have done years ago and I didn't. And she said to me, Calvin, in your family and in the vines, I've seen that you guys have something there that you will hold on to when things go down that I don't have. And I know that. There's a testimony, and I'm not blowing our trumpet. I'm saying that the, the world watches us. They see, even when we don't think they're watching. Does your life point to God's grace at work? Or does it point to your faults and you? Justin Martyr, who was a Christian philosopher in 130 AD, came to Christ as a result of seeing how Christians responded while they were being martyred. So they were being put in the flames, they were being set alight, and he was watching them as an unbeliever, and he noted how they reacted, even in that situation. This is what he said. When I was a disciple of Plato, he writes, hearing the accusations made against the Christians, and seeing them intrepid in the face of death, and of all that men fear, I said to myself that it was impossible that they should be living in evil and in the love of pleasure. You see, that is what these Christians were being persecuted for. They were being branded as evil. And so when he saw the way they responded, he said, this can't be. This is not measuring up. And he became a believer. You see, the witness of the unbelievers, of the believers in Christ, spoke out to this unbeliever. He saw Christ in them. And you know, Justin, Justin Martyr as his surname says, was martyred in the end for his Christian faith. And he was beheaded for his faith in AD 165. What did Jesus himself say? And that's why I took you back to Matthew today. Jesus said this, and please listen to his words. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works. Not your good words, your good work works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is Jesus' words to us. What was his own example when Jesus was on that cross and he was crucified? The centurion, one of the ones who helped to crucify Jesus Christ, was watching Jesus even in, the, in that time in his life. And he saw Jesus keeping silent even when there was no just condemnation on Christ. He heard Jesus asking forgiveness for those who had crucified him as well as for those who didn't understand why they were doing this, the Jewish nation who had crucified him. And he, uh, he heard Jesus asking for forgiveness for the thief who was hanging next to him on the cross. The centurion was witness to all this. What was his response in seeing all this? This is what he said, and his words are recorded for us in Scripture. Matthew fifteen thirty nine. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, when he said, it is finished, he said, this is his testimony, truly, this man was the Son of God. You see, even in death, Jesus' life gave God glory and brought unbelievers to him. That is what I cry for, the Lord would use me to, that even in for my whole life, even in my death, 
God would use that to bring unbelievers to Him in the way that I die, in the way that I go about dying, that God would use that as well. Our purpose as believers, said verse 9, is to advertise God's glory. And we do it through the way we live. What does that look like in our everyday lives? We're going to get practical now and then I'm going to be finishing. What does that look like in your work life? Those of you who are now working and bringing an income in, how do you do business? Do you do business in a God-glorifying way and in a truthful way? Yes, even if it costs you a little bit more, do you glorify God in the way you do business? Those of you who are involved in skilled labor, do you do your best for Him in the way you put things together, in the way you put that bolt on? Do you do your best for Him? Do you give Him your hardest work? Even when your fellow laborers are off on a smoker they shouldn't be or when they're laying slack, how do you work for Christ in the labor situation? Those of you working in factories, when the union goes contra to God's instructions to workers, do you stand with them or do you stand up and are you seen? Those of you in professional careers, the world of psychology and sociology, do, are you taken in by the world's philosophies and the world's theories on human development and interaction? Or do you do things the way God has told us the human works? Do you base what you do on what God has said, the way God says it works? Those of you in education, the teachers amongst us, do you use God's advice on teaching a child's heart and not just modifying their behavior? Do you try and reach out to the child's heart first? Because otherwise you're just putting behavior on the outside. It looks good, but inside is rotten. You see, does your life glorify God or are you merging with the society around you just by the way you live? In our homes, are we countercultural in the way we live? Countercultural against the culture in the way we live. You see, our culture today is so preoccupied with self-indulgence. You just look on TV and you'll see it. Express yourself. Live your own life, says our adverts. Just do it, says Nike. In our daily lives, are we countercultural? Do we deny ourselves? Or when the world looks at us as families, do they see us chasing around after the same old things that they're chasing around? Spending money, being at the first, the first to rub shoulders with them at the sales, Labor Day sales. Are we the first ones in the queue? Or are we living counterculturally against the culture of the day? Is there any difference between us and them? I believe it applies to us here in this church life too. The question is, are we doing God's work His way, as Alistair Begg says? What does that look like in our church? Well, in the world, how do they know when a, an event is successful? By the numbers that pitch up for it. So what are we to do as a church? Are we to do church the, church the world's way or to do it God's way? Are we to chase numbers in the church? And whenever we do things and the numbers stay away, then we change what we're doing so that the people will come in again? No. We have to do God's work His way. We have to be faithful to His word. I need to be preaching His word here, Sunday in, Sunday out. Whoever's in this pulpit, we have to be faithful to God. We have to give in-depth discipleship. You know, in the world today, everything is stuck on the surface. It all looks good, but when you dig down, it's not good. Stuck on the surface. We are to give in-depth discipleship here at this church. We are to help you 
to live lives that are God glorifying? Are we to to charge to sorry? Are we to chase a high church income? You know, a lot of churches now it's just about money. Um, I was trying to think who it was. A friend of mine, uh, sorry, Jenny, my daughter, not a friend. My daughter went to a church. She was visiting around before she got to the church. She was second meeting. She was there. They gave her a form that said how she must give. And then she had a follow-up visit on had she come right yet with a bank account. That's the second visit. No one had come to even visit her to find out who she was, but they were following up on how she was giving already. You see, for a lot of churches, it's about income. Well, I know at this church, we don't chase income. We look to the Lord and He will give us what we need here. And we need to stay faithful to that. We are not to be tempted to do church the world's way. So here are the implications for us. And with this I close this morning. We're coming to the end of 2010, going into 2011. Are you and I going to live another year for ourselves? Or are we going to live a life that glorifies God, that shows unbelievers the light that is already in us, and as it comes out and strikes the eyes? Are we going to live with hearts focused on God? Because if we focus our, God, our hearts on God, the actions that come from us will be right actions. That will mean that we have a watchfulness when we get up in the morning. We have an attitude of, Lord, I want to depend on you and your word. I've been in your word this morning and now I'm going to be in the world and I need to watch myself. I need to rein in those passions. We're going to look for our direction and our energy from the Holy Spirit himself during the day. Not from my lunch bar. I'm going to look to the Holy Spirit to help me through the day, to get through the day in a God-glorifying way. I'm going to make war on my sin. I'm not going to whinge and make all kinds of excuses because my life is carrying on and I keep seeing these things and they keep coming but I'm not doing anything about it. I'm going to make war on anything that comes between me and God. Anything that comes between me and God. And teenagers, if that means that you end a relationship because that relationship is a wedge between you and God, that means you end that relationship in our workplaces, if it means there's a wedge between you and God, you might need to end that job. And yes, I know I'm speaking in a recession. But if it stops you from worshipping God as you need to, you need to stop that as well. And our behavior towards unbelievers. Are you and I going to live our work lives, our family lives, our social lives, our church life by God's principles? Whatever the cost to us. We are living billboards. We are living adverts to God and to His glory. The world sees us. They only hear about Jesus Christ. They see us. They only hear about Jesus Christ. Let them see Jesus in us. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, Thank you for this specific passage from your word this morning. In your own agenda, in your own time, in what you want to teach us today, specifically this week, you've brought up this specific situation of living in the world in such a way that glory is given to you. Lord, thank you for the reminder that we are just here for a little while 
but that for that little while you want us to live God-honoring lives. And Lord, it's practical theology in action. It's not just saying one thing and living another. May the world see us shining Christ in everything that we do, in our words, in our reactions to them, in what we chase in this world. May we show that God is alive, that He has made a difference in our lives, that we can hold on to Him. Yes, we have hope, and that we can live for Him daily. Lord, it's a plea from my heart. May we live these lives this week that are practical for you, showing that we belong to you, that our hearts have been changed, and that therefore our actions can also be changed. May we live lives that strike the eyes of unbelievers around us, we pray. We only do it through the strength that you give us, because in our own, we can't. To you be all the glory in this week, we pray.